Hello, and thank you for tuning in to New Glasgow Christian Church. My name is Stephen Weatherby, and I'm the pastor here at NGCC, a small rural church with a big heart located in central Prince Edward Island, Canada. This week, we are continuing in our series of messages based on Mark Moore's devotional book, Core 52. Each week, we will explore a key theme from scripture, providing practical insights and reflections to deepen our understanding of God's Word. Join us as we uncover the foundational principles that shape our Christian walk and discover how they can impact our lives today. This morning is our final week in the Sermon on the Mount, the pinnacle or the apex of the teachings of Jesus. In these heart matters we've been studying, we've talked about things like blessedness, morality, prayer, and money. And we've seen in all of these, Jesus take on the conventional wisdom of the world and elevate or raise the bar of expectation for his followers. Our core verse this morning is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I am sure that everyone has heard those words before, maybe slightly different in wording, but this is one of those few rare verses that almost everyone on the planet knows. They must most likely can't cite where it comes from, but we call it the golden rule. To a certain extent, the golden rule is not unique to Jesus. There's some uh, variations of this rule that you can find in most religions or philosophical schools of thought around the world. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, Confucius supposedly said, do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Then the great Jewish rabbi Hillel summed up Jewish law by saying, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbors. For that is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. So what's the difference then? Why does Jesus restate this? Or is that all he's doing? Because at the surface level, it sounds very similar to these other teachings. And like we've said, Jesus has been elevating these teachings. And so we remember as we study this that Jesus does not just reiterate morality that's taught in the culture. He raises the bar. So you may have, when I read that, picked up on a subtle difference between the golden rule as Jesus stated it and the other ones that I read. And the difference is that the ones who came before Jesus all use the word don't. Jesus, however, says do. Not doing to others what we would not want done to us, I think that's a great idea. It's a great rule. You know, I wouldn't want someone to punch me in the face. So maybe I should not Do that to someone else. That's a great rule. If we all live by that, there'll be a lot less hurt in the world. But Jesus, when he states this rule, he doesn't just restate that rule. He actually raises the bar. Don't just stay out of trouble. Don't just avoid harming others. Do something good. That verb, do, that's what we call an imperative in Greek. In other words, it is a command. It is not optional. When he says, do to others, he is commanding this to be done. This one command, this do, 
by Jesus sums up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount very well as well. In the devotional this week, Mark Moore says, The power and purity of the golden rule inspires our best efforts to emulate Jesus. Because that's really what the goal is, isn't it? To imitate Jesus. Now James sums this up very well in his letter, uh, which we studied together, I believe it was two years ago in the fall, we went through the letter of James. It's a very short uh, letter, it's practical in its content. But when you start to really look at it and, and read through it, one thing that becomes clear, especially as we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, is that basically this letter by James is his notes on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's essentially a commentary on how we should do these things that Jesus says. So in the first chapter of the letter, James says this, in verse 27, he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We're really good at focusing on that last part, not being polluted by the world. And that is important, but that is not the sum total of our purpose as the church. And that's the trap that we sometimes fall into. Religion that our God accepts, according to James, is one of service. Not service that's trying to earn our salvation, not trying to complete actions that earn our way to heaven, because we can't do that. But service in response to being saved by Jesus. And that theme carries through a lot of the letter of James. So if that is the goal here that he's dating, service, does that mean that morality, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is not actually important as long as we are serving the widows and orphans? No. That's the other trap that we fall into increasingly these days. It is still important. Morality still matters. In fact, Christ-driven service will help us in our morality more than if we make morality our only point of focus. Does that make sense? We balance these two and they complement each other. The more we serve others, the more that it will increase our morality. Now there are Christians, there are even whole congregations that are almost entirely focused on the morality piece as motivation. They're entirely focused on that not being polluted by the world. The problem is that that is a very isolating position to find yourself in. When we fall into that trap, we only interact with non-Christians long enough to judge them and condemn them. And then we retreat back into the safety of our churches. And when we do that, the world will respond to us accordingly. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are you when the world hates you because of me. So, in this sermon we've been studying, if the world hates you because of Jesus, you're blessed. But, if the world hates Jesus because of you, that is a problem. The word ministry is often summed up by identifying a need and then filling that need. Following that kind of service-driven motivation will lead you into all kinds of places with all kinds of people. It is impossible to avoid people and serve them at the same time. 
And it's kind of gotten to the point in our culture where religion's almost become a bad or dirty word. People say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. You know, I, I believe in Jesus, not church. You, you hear these kind of words that say that religion has become such a dirty concept in our society. Because referring to someone as religious usually is describing someone by what they do not do as opposed to what they do. But in reality, being religious in the Christian faith should refer to us being ambassadors of Christ to the world. It should be a good thing. If things are working the way they are supposed to, serving others should not endanger our morality. Rather, it should drive us to be the example that Jesus has called us to be for the benefit of those we are serving. That is a far better motivator than self-control alone because engagement with others will deepen our faith much more than avoidance. Now, again, none of this is meant to imply, and I kind of, I'm kind of straddling a line this morning, uh, none of this is meant to imply that active service as the church is replacement for morality. We have to have both of these. It's a trap. Because some will say loving others is all that matters. And no, that's not true either. James is not saying that. And Jesus definitely does not say that. There's more to our faith than just one or two things that we like to boil it down to. But doing, acting on our faith, that is how we go about getting both of those done. Because serving others also helps to build us in morals. I think we would all agree that we get a lot more done by doing things, doing what we should instead of being idle to avoid the possibility of doing wrong. It's kind of like in sports, being so focused on not making a mistake that you don't try to win. And the only sport I play is golf, the only sport I've ever played, and that's only been two years. I'm not a sporty person. But I can really relate to this in golf. Because after I slice my fifth ball into the woods, and I'm looking at my friend who's not saying anything, but judging me. (laughs) You know, at that point, who cares if you beat your buddy? Just keep your balls on the course, finish your round, put the driver in the bag, and don't take it out again. You're you're playing, you're so focused on trying not to make a, a mistake that you don't try to win anymore. But when it comes to our faith, We shouldn't just try not to lose. And that's kind of the approach that we sometimes have. We just try to do what we need to do, check off those minimum tabs, and and, and not lose, not make a mistake. Just do the bare minimum to get through. But we should be playing to win. God calls us to an active lifestyle of loving. And it's funny because this happens more often than I... uh, (laughs) It shouldn't surprise me anymore, but Judy said it this morning. We didn't talk about the sermon at all this week, um, at all. So just a Holy Spirit thing, I guess. But she basically said this exact point, uh, word for word. Uh, God calls us to an active lifestyle of loving others. It's not passive. We can't do this from our homes or in our church building. We have to do it. We have to go to the people. So how do we do this? Well, first... We have to apply this to ourselves. God calls us to listen to his word and put his principles into practice. James 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. I'm sure I've told you all the story about Duck Church before, and I might have done it actually when I preached the sermon on this passage in James, but I'm going to tell it again because it's one of my favorites. It makes me laugh every time. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a town of ducks. On Sunday morning, all the ducks came waddling out of their houses and waddled down the streets into their duck church where they squatted into their pews. After they sang their duck hymns and began their duck prayers, the duck minister got up to preach. Ducks, you were born to fly. God has given you wings to soar like eagles, so you should fly. This rousing message was met with cries of amen and preach. After the service, the ducks lined up to thank the minister for his inspiring words, and they all waddled home. And it's, it's a funny story, but the sad truth is often we are just like those ducks because we too can fly. Not literally, but spiritually. God has given us so much blessing, so much gifts, so many opportunities, and there is so much blessing to be found in following God's word and his will for our lives. But if we come to church, we hear the words of scripture, and we go home without applying them, What's the point? God calls us to put his teaching into practice. He calls us to be active in our faith. Because faith is practical and it is visible. Faith is seen by others through our actions. James chapter 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And then in verse 17 to 18, In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We've talked about this before as well. If you're hypothetically standing in the middle of the road, just over the top of a blind hill, you know, it comes down the hill, you're just at the, bo- at the bottom of the hill, someone at the top says, get off the road, There's a truck coming down really fast and he's going to come over the the hill and he's going to hit you and kill you. And you say, thank you, I believe you. And then you just stand there and don't move. You either don't actually believe, you don't understand, or you don't care. If you believe the truck is coming and you understand the truck is coming and you care, you don't want to get hit by the truck, you move off the road. That is why James says that faith without deeds is dead. Because we don't earn our salvation, but we all believe the gospel. We say we believe the gospel. We wouldn't be here if we didn't. We all say we believe we are called to live a life of faith that is evidenced by our deeds. And we should all understand this because we've talked about it a lot. So we believe it, we understand it. So the question is, do we care? If we care, we will express our faith through our deeds. And if we don't care, can we truly say we have faith? Because you see, faith is different than knowledge. Faith has substance. It has evidence. Faith is seen in both our hearts and in action. True faith in Jesus is defined by actions that are peace-loving, gentle, and willing to yield to others. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it by their good lives, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 17 to 18 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's a bunch of information, and I, I kind of sound like I'm rambling so far. So kind of the question is, how does this all come back to the golden rule? So how do we get back to that? What are we supposed to do with this? So faith is about believing and doing. The golden rule, in the words of Jesus, is not just about avoiding harming others. It is actually about actively doing good for others. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? What does God require us? Well, as I was writing this, there was one song that's been on the radio for months that I haven't been able to stop thinking about this week. I actually hate this song, but it's on uh, the country station (laughs) over and over. Uh, It's by Walker Hayes, and there's a line in it that goes, trying to get to church so I don't go to hell. That's not a great plan. (laughs) It's not how it works. (laughs) And I don't know why I just keep sticking in my head this week. But a lot of people live that way. They think, well, I have to get to church a few more times this year so I can stay on God's good side. At the very least, make sure you get to church for Christmas and Easter, above all else. It's the bare minimum. Now, I'm not saying that things like going to church don't matter. Scripture makes it very clear that what we do does matter, that gathering together does matter. We've talked about that. But again, as we've seen in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always trying to get to the heart of the matter, the spirit of the rule. Listen to these words from our devotional this week from Mark Moore. He says, when we go to church, say our prayers, and perform our religious duties without the right heart, our sacrifice becomes a bribe to God, not a blessing to his people. So what are we to do? There's a great verse that addresses this question, and it ties in really well with the golden rule from Jesus. The question is, what does the Lord require of us? Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So understand context first. Micah is speaking to Israel after the fall of the northern kingdom. He is warning them that if they did not repent of their sin, their nation would fall just like others had in the past and history would repeat itself. A nation falls when God's people fail to act justly, love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And that's true for us today as well. I believe that. It's so easy for us as Christians to point at others, to blame the government, the world, the culture, people who aren't like us, and say, you're responsible for our society and where we are today. But what about us? What about our part that we have to play? What if we did what we were supposed to do as Christians? What kind of difference would that make in our culture, in our country? So this is what we are called to do in Micah. First, act justly. Justice is another action. It is a do. 
Solomon said in Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Do righteousness, do justice. It's something we do, not something we think or we feel. It's not just a value. It is something that requires participation on our part. There's so much division in our world today, but I don't have to agree with you or your cause, whatever it may be, to treat you well. I don't have to agree with you in order to serve you as scripture requires me to. I don't have to be about all the things that you are in order to do for you what I would want done for me, to do good, to show love. The golden rule does not require someone to deserve it. And it does not require us to believe they deserve it. It is a command for us to do, period. It doesn't matter how I'm treated in return. It doesn't matter how I've been treated before. I am commanded to be holy as God is holy. There's no getting even, no tit for tat in the world in which we follow Jesus. There's no treating someone badly because they hold a different opinion or view or because they treated me badly. We can disagree, sure. But we are to treat people with respect, with justice and mercy. So the first is to act justly. Second is to love mercy, or your Bible might say kindness. Now this doesn't translate well from Hebrew. Uh, It's a very heavy word. Mercy and kindness, they are heavy in our language, but not as heavy as, as intended in this verse. This word in Hebrew implies covenant loyalty, like in marriage. To love kindness or mercy, in the sense it is stated here, is to act or live as though that were true, even if it isn't yet. To act as if we love mercy and kindness, even if we don't yet to commit ourselves to living a life dedicated to kindness and mercy. So love is another do. It's an action. Now this isn't a command to be kind and merciful. And that is something that uh, I think is really important to note here. It's not a command to be kind and merciful. It is a command to love being kind and merciful. To make it a central part of who you are as a person core to your identity. So this goes beyond basic manners or politeness. It is actually caring and living that out and finding joy in doing so. So second, love mercy or kindness. The third is to walk humbly with your God. And this is really the one that contrasts with the world the most. Because everyone else does things for attention. When people help others, they want to be recognized for their selflessness. You know, whenever something happens in the world today, uh, whether it's, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or what we're seeing in Israel, it takes about 30 minutes before everyone has a little flag on their profile picture on Facebook. Everyone does these things that don't really mean anything, that doesn't really help anyone or do anything, but everyone sees that you did it. When people help others or when they take a stand, they want to be recognized for doing so. They want to be recognized for their selflessness when they help others. But what if instead we didn't draw the attention to ourselves? What if we just did the things? 
to help others and to love others? What if we just did unto others as we would have them do to us in kindness and love and didn't draw attention to ourselves for doing it? And listen, there's actually a number of people here at New Glasgow who are really good at this. There's some very faithful, humble servants, uh, people who do things and keep things running that you would never notice unless they disappeared or stopped. And to those people, I say thank you (laughs) for your dedication and the fact that you're so humble that people don't even see you doing these things. Now, again, this isn't to say that all our service is supposed to be covert or, or hidden, but our service should not be motivated by praise or pride. That should not be the reason we do it. We cannot and do not work our way into God's favor by our behavior. However, God does care about what we do, and he cares about our motives. The reason we do things is just, if not more important, than actually doing the things. And so the question is, are we responding to God's goodness when we serve others, when we love others, or are we trying to manipulate him? Because God is clear about how he feels when church and religion is not connected to justice, mercy, and humility. So as we conclude this morning, know that the golden rule, above all, is a do thing. It's not a don't thing. It is active participation. We are not staying out of trouble by staying out of the game. You're actually implicated by sitting on the sidelines and not actively loving others and treating others well. Jesus does not just call us to avoid sin. He calls us to do good to others. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in his letter. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is sin for them. And so, do good to others. Act justly, love kindness and mercy, and walk humbly with your God as you do these things. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that this week's teaching was a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you live in the New Glasgow area, we would love for you to come out and to join us for our Sunday gathering. For information on service times, location, and more, check out our website at ngcc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.